lifeless, not thinking in our prayer, to not think about our own needs, to not think about God, who he truly is. And so part of what we're trying to do in this year-long emphasis is to remind us of what is true about God and about us, to see prayer differently. And as you and I think about these things, we can ask God to give us life in our prayer because, you see, you and I can't improve our prayer life just by trying. It just doesn't work. But if you ask God, that is a prayer he loves to answer to help us in our prayer. And so that's what we're doing. And so the series title for this four weeks is Jesus' Final Prayer, Asking the Father to Act. Now, though Jesus does intercede for his followers in this prayer, remember, we call it Jesus' high priestly prayer. He didn't call it that. We do. And one of the things that a priest does is intercede for people, and Jesus does intercede for his followers in this prayer. There is so much more to the prayer. Now, actually, it could be called the Lord's Prayer because it is the Lord who prays it, but we already gave that title to his model prayer. So to keep things from being confusing, we'll call it his high priestly prayer. And you notice as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus prays often, but you might also notice we don't have many of his prayers recorded. And so we're pretty sure in this case Jesus is praying the prayer so his disciples could hear it. And so we have it recorded. Now, it's always helpful when you're reading the Bible to get the context of the portion of the Bible that you're reading. And so we're looking at John 17. And so the situation for John 17 is this. John, uh, Jesus prays this prayer just before his arrest and his crucifixion. So that what comes after. And that means that these are some of Jesus' last words, and we give great importance to people's last words. But let's also look at what happened just before the prayer, and you find these details in John 13 to 17, or 16. And so first, Jesus had his last Passover meal with his disciples. At that meal, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. That's disturbing. Talk about it in just a minute. Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him, even more disturbing. Jesus warns Peter that, Je that Peter's going to deny Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving them. That's very, very disturbing. Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. He does this both in John 14 and John 16. Jesus calls himself the true vine, calls God the Father the vine dresser and his followers the branches. Does this in John 15, where he gives a word picture of spiritual life. Also, at the end of John 15, he speaks about how the world hates him and will hate his followers. And mixed in with all of this, in the middle of all this, Jesus gives them an amazing promise about prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times, especially when I was younger, reading the Bible, and I'm looking at in Old Testament what people did and the disciples in the New Testament, and I've said to myself, you know, if I was there, I would not have acted like that. I would have done much better. But you know what? If you and I had been there at that Last Supper with Jesus, knowing only what they knew, not knowing what we know, looking back through history, through the New Testament, 
we would have been just as troubled and in, and in just as much turmoil as the disciples were. Because you think about it. If I had just started reading John 17, and we hadn't talked about this context, you might be thinking, oh, Jesus gives a prayer, the disciples, oh, they're fine. They are good. They're not good. They are very, very troubled. Look in that list that I had up there, the things that are troubling. They live in a shame-honor culture where you avoid, do whatever you can to avoid shame, and you enjoy the honor and try to add to it. And so Jesus, their master, their teacher, humbles himself at that meal and washes their feet. You see it with Peter, but I'm sure all of them were embarrassed. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? They're embarrassed. Then, remember that this is a group of his 12 closest followers. They've been with him for three years, and he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. Well, they don't realize it was that night he was going to get betrayed. And remember their response. Is it me? Is there something I don't know about me? What's going on here? Then, Jesus tells them he's going to leave. Now, you get a few hints in the gospel accounts about Jesus and the disciples. But it's pretty clear that in that day, the disciples, the Jews were taught in general, that God was going to restore Israel. In fact, you remember when Jesus was born, people were looking for, waiting for the Messiah. And they believed he was going to restore Israel. And the disciples had heard that. They'd been taught that all their lives. You get hints that they still thought that's what was going to happen with Jesus. And it also explains why it is they were arguing with each other so many times about who was going to be the greatest. I mean, have you ever thought why they did that? Connect the dots. They think Jesus is the man. He's the one. He's going to restore Israel. And what has he done? He's chosen them, the 12, as his closest friends and followers. So logically it follows they are going to have a position of honor, remember shame, honor, culture, of honor, great honor in this new kingdom. But being human, I want a little bit more honor than you have. And so they argue about who's going to be the greatest. And now Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm leaving. And what happened to all their dreams and hopes for their nation and themselves? And then Jesus tells them that the world's going to hate them. Now, any one of those is troubling. But Jesus gives them all four. And it's only after saying all of those things that Jesus gives this prayer that we find in John 17. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, John 17, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus begins, verse 1, or verse 1 begins, when Jesus had spoken these words. So that's pointing back to the whole context we just looked at, John 13 to 16, all those troubling things. And then it said, we're told, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, which was a common posture for prayer. Now, we call this the high priestly prayer, and we have Jesus' model prayer, and there are similarities between the two, and here is one of them. In both of them, Jesus, who is God the Son, is praying to God the Father. But one of the things that we don't get when we read the English translation is the radical nature that Jesus introduces and, in, and puts in at times when he talks about prayer and he talks about God when he calls him Abba, which means daddy. See, the Jews believed, and rightly so, that God is great and powerful and mighty and majestic. They also had this sense that he was distant and that... that any relationship you had with him had to be very formal, and they could not fathom intimate, an intimate relationship with the God of the universe, yet that's how Jesus speaks of God. Now, you notice, too, that Jesus doesn't say here in John 17, pray like this, like he does with his model prayer, but there's still much that we can learn from this prayer and copy. And so Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays to God. And if you think about God being in heaven, that reminds us that God is in control of all things everywhere. And then, still at the beginning of this, Jesus says, the hour has come, glorify your son. So let's look at a few other verses that use that same phrase or a similar phrase, the hour has come. In Matthew 26, 18, Jesus is speaking. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So that's one. But even there, it's not totally clear. It could have a couple of different meanings. It's time for the Passover. We know, looking back through history, through the New Testament, it also points to his death. Then in John 2, verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let me talk about this for just a minute. Because just reading that little bit, you ought to be a little confused about why Jesus has that statement, my hour has not yet come. It doesn't seem to fit. And it doesn't even fit when you just know the circumstances that he speaks it in. He's speaking to his mother. And when he calls her a woman, he's not being disrespectful. But he, is, he and a few of his followers are at a wedding in Cana, which is a little village not too far from his village of Nazareth that he grew up in. And he's at a wedding, was invited to it, and his mother was there as well. And it's not like weddings today. Today, when, when a, a man and woman are getting married, they have their guest list, and only the people on the guest list can come. Nobody else can. 
Back then, it was much more of an open invitation. And so they're at the wedding, and they're at the wedding reception. There's the food and the wine, and we're told that they are running low on wine. Remember, this is a shame-honor culture, and for the wedding party to run low on wine during the reception, that's a bad thing. Now, how could it happen? If it's an open invitation and more people come than they expected, that could happen. And Jesus' mother Mary, who's not part of the wedding party, and Jesus isn't part of the wedding party, comes to Jesus and said, they have a problem, would you please fix it? And Jesus' response, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I'll explain in a second where I think this goes. But just so you know, you're not left hanging. He does actually help. He tells the servants, get some water. They get these humongous containers of water, and he turns them into wine. And the wedding reception goes, and everybody's happy. But then the other verse, John 7, 30. This is talking about the religious leaders and Jesus. The religious leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So when Jesus says here in John 17, when it says in John 7:30, his hour hasn't come, or turn it around. In John 17, when he says, my hour has come, he means the time has come for my death. So in John 2, when he's talking to his mom, and he says, my hour hasn't come, biblical scholars believe, and I agree with them, he's at a wedding, and he's thinking about his wedding. And he's going to have a wedding. It's still in our future. But he won't have his bride unless he dies. Because that's how he gets his bride, by dying. His bride is his church. That's us. All the Christians that Jesus died for. So he's at a wedding thinking of his wedding. Mom, it's not time. My time isn't yet. I'm not going to die yet. That's how I get my bride. I remember hearing some years ago <clears throat> one of Harvester's former missionaries speaking of his working in the middle of a drug neighborhood in downtown Atlanta. He, he lived in the suburbs. Um, he was one of our missionaries at the time, and he was coming up speaking to us. In fact, what happened as a result of his speaking was that a group of about 20-plus people from Harvester went down to Atlanta and worked for about a week because his ministry had been given a little bitty, I don't know, six or seven room hotel, motel in the middle of downtown Atlanta that was now a drug neighborhood. And it was going to be rehabbed, turned into kind of a halfway house so that people could move out of the neighborhood and out of the drug culture. And he was talking to the church and saying he was just as safe in the middle of the drug neighborhood as he was in his bed, in his house, in the nice suburban neighborhood. And here's the point he was making. His life and his hand, times were in God's hands. And so are ours. And so at just the right time, as we're told in the New Testament, Jesus was born. And now in John 17, at the just the right time and in just the right way, Jesus will die. Now, we just looked at John 7, 30, where the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but they couldn't. Why? It wasn't his time. This is a reminder that everything that's happened in history and everything that's happening today happens according to God's plan. 
according to his eternal decree. So that means that the path that our country is on and other countries, the COVID pandemic we've had for a year and are still dealing with, your own personal situation in life, the good things that you enjoy, the struggles that you and I have, all of it is in God's hands. And so Jesus says the hour has come. And what he means is that his death, he's talking about his death, and his death was a part of Jesus' mission to rescue us. Jesus took what was then a horrible method of torture and he turned it into a symbol of life and hope. And then Jesus said, the hour's come, and he talked about glory. Jesus will glorify God the Father through his death and resurrection, and God the Father will glorify Jesus. In our Sunday school, we're currently going through the book of Philippians, and in Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11, we read this about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so you see this dynamic in Philippians and in John 17. Jesus glorifies God the Father, and God the Father glorifies Jesus. Then in verse 2, we see that God gave Jesus authority over all mankind, including authority to give eternal life to all the people that God had given him. Now, if you've gone through and read more slowly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looked at Jesus, one of the things that you will notice is that Jesus never, never, ever claimed to have authority apart from God the Father. He never did. Our men's Bible study is going through the book of John. And so we go at the pace, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks a chapter sometimes. I'm looking at Dave because he's part of that group. And we have a good time discussing what's going on there. And when you go that slow, you can see some things. Like how often Jesus talks about authority and he says, I was sent by God the Father. He sent me. I only do what he tells me to do. I only say what he tells me to say. And so multiple times in John you see Jesus saying, he's here on earth under God's authority. But now we read, God has given Jesus authority. And when you look in Matthew 28, you see that what Jesus says after his death and resurrection. In 28:18, Jesus says, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now notice that phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth. That doesn't leave anything out. He's got it all. And so, When you think about nations and governments and businesses and churches and families, you and me, we're all under Jesus' authority. But here's the question. Do you and I think that way? When we think about nations and governments and churches and businesses, do we think about Jesus' authority? And the answer often is no, we don't. So God gives Jesus authority to give eternal life. 
Now, why is it <clears throat> excuse me, important that Jesus gives eternal life? Because we all are born spiritually dead to God and rebellious toward God. If you've been in church, in a church that teaches the Bible, you'll have heard this over and over again. But think about it. What do we do left to ourselves? Left to ourselves, we don't obey God's law. We disobey God and we try to make our own rules. We don't honor God, even though he deserves it. We try to get other people to honor us. We don't worship God as he deserves. We worship anything and everything else. And when we talk about worship, not just talking about kind of what we do formally here, but this is the idea of enjoying and delighting in and looking for life from it and enjoyment from it. And then we don't acknowledge God as creator and Lord. We try to put ourselves in his place. So here we're being told that Jesus, God has given Jesus authority to give eternal life, to rescue us, and what we realize is we don't deserve his rescue. So your security in mind isn't in us choosing God. If we even admit that we need help, our security is in God choosing us and committing himself that he will never let us go. So in verse 3, Jesus tells us what eternal life is. And by the way, this is a great verse to memorize. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So look at what Jesus says. Eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. Now, in English, we have a little problem there because know means multiple things. And here's what it doesn't mean. Eternal life doesn't mean that we know about God and about Jesus, that we know facts, that we know Bible trivia about Jesus or about God. No, what it means is Eternal life is us having a personal relationship with God the Father and with Jesus. And it's a relationship that God initiates. God makes that very, very clear all the way through the Bible. And again, we don't deserve it, so we call it grace. Grace is a word that means gift. And so we can call it amazing grace because it is an amazing gift. And it never stops being amazing. Then in verse 4. Jesus says to God the Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So here, if you want to know one aspect of giving God glory, it's this. Jesus glorified God by accomplishing the work that God gave him to do. So that work included all that Jesus said, including his personal conversations, his teaching, his sermons. It included all that Jesus did, his healings and miracles and teachings and his acts of compassion. Well, you and I should be thinking of our own lives the same way. That you and I are to accomplish the work that God gives us. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more at the end. But we're to accomplish the work that God gives us depending upon God totally. For wisdom, for strength, for direction, for protection. And then verse 5. Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before, before the world existed. I think Jesus here is remembering, thinking back to being with God in heaven, not only before coming to earth, but before creation. 
And Jesus wants to be in heaven with God the Father again. And here's one other example, and this is from Paul, and he's talking about a similar desire that he has. In Philippians 1, verses 22 to 24, Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Well, here's a little background to help make sense of this. Paul is in prison, and he's writing a letter to the Christians at the church in Philippi, and he's saying, I'm going to get out of prison one way or the other. I'll either die or I'll be released. And here what you see him saying is, I've got these two options and I am torn. He says, I know the better option. That's to be dead because if I'm dead, I'm with Jesus. That's the best option. But the other option here is if I'm alive, I can still help you. And he goes on to say, and I think God wants me to stay alive at least a little longer to help you. But you see his desire to be with God. Well, here's a question. As you think about heaven, what is it that makes heaven heaven? That is, what is it that makes heaven so wonderful? Is it the pearly gates? Is it the streets of gold? As a Marine, I sing about the Marines being on the streets of gold. Is it the fountain of life? No. God is what makes heaven so wonderful. God being there. And Jesus wants to be with his Father in heaven again. Well, let me finish by talking a little bit about prayer. I just mentioned at the beginning our prayer life. Prayer involves more than just talking to God. We often refer to prayer as talking to God. But it, there's more to it. So the first thing is to realize that Talking to God is a step in the right direction because so often we can go through hours in a day or days in a week and not talk to God. So talking to God is a good thing, and talking to God all through the day about, what, about everything you do is even better. Well, let me add a little piece. You notice from the New Testament in general, but certainly from our verses today, Jesus was on earth on God's mission. He told God, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. And so Jesus' prayer in John 17 relates to God's mission, which is to collect and claim and grow and keep a people for himself. And God has Jesus on this mission, and God has us, Christians, on this mission as well. But because Jesus was on earth, on God's mission, Jesus had confidence that God the Father would hear him and answer his prayer. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that in the middle of all that Jesus said before John 17, that there was an amazing promise about prayer. Well, here it is. It's John 15, 7, and Jesus says to his followers, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, on the face of it, it looks like a blank check. But it is an if-then promise. So there is a condition. And that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, remember 
John 15, Jesus paints a word picture of spiritual life using a grapevine and the vine dresser and the branches. And he says, Christians, Jesus' followers are the branches. They only make fruit if they're connected to the vine. Not just plugged in, but actually living from uh, the vine. And so the first half looks like oh, if, you're, if you're connected and living, well, let me restate it the first half this way. If you and I are on Jesus' mission as you live each day, then when you pray, God will answer. Jesus was here on earth on God's mission, and he accomplished God's mission, and he didn't stray from God's mission. And so when he prayed, and he prayed about God's mission, he knew God would answer. If you and I are on Jesus' mission that he's given us, because he gives us this same mission, when we pray, God will answer. Well, let me explain just a little further. Jesus' mission for us is that you and I live our daily lives with our family, at school, at work, with our friends, that is, in every circumstance, desiring and striving to be a godly family member with our family, a godly student at school, a godly worker at work, godly friend with friends, that is, to copy Jesus in all of these relationships. There's one more piece for us. Asking God to give us His direction, His wisdom, His strength, his love, that is, we do this in total dependence on him. That's Jesus' mission for us. That in everything we do, every day, in all of our relationships, being copying Jesus, to be living as a follower of Jesus, totally depending on God, as he works in us and through us to grow his kingdom, that is, to add people to his family, to grow us spiritually, to grow us in maturity, that's his mission for us. When you and I are aligned with Jesus' mission and we pray, God promises to answer, he promises to act. And his answer will always be the best and his timing will always also be the best. So God not only rescues us, he then calls us to a work and he enables us to that work. All of that is his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for loving us, for rescuing us. Lord, help us to see both at the same time how much we do not deserve your rescue, but how needed it is. Lord, also help us to see what you've called us to, that you've called us to a work, to your mission, to be a part of your family, to do the work you've given us, loving others, serving others in every relationship, in every part of our life, totally depending upon you. We cannot do that. We don't have the desire on our own. We don't have the ability, but you work in us. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that you continue to give us that desire, grow that desire, and then continue to grow us and to work in us and through us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. Please stand.
Crown him with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. this King through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of love. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wondering eye at mystery so bright. Crown him the Lord of life. Crown him the Lord of life. Who triumphed o'er the grave And rose victorious in the strife For those he came to save His glories now we sing Who died and rose on high Who died eternal life to bring And lives that death may die Crown him the Lord of heaven. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the King to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. Crown him with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns, as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. Amen. Please be seated. Now we come to our time in our service for praying for prayer requests. We have one prayer request. Um, that's from Janet. Um, pray for harvesters, pastors, elders, deacons, and all members to be the light of Christ to our culture, to stand firm and faithful to the Word of God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, we, Father, we pray that you would work in us as pastors, elders, deacons, and members to be your light to our culture, Father, whether it be in our families, whether it be in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, or wherever we may be, Father. I pray that you would 
help us to persevere, that we would stand firm and faithful to your word, Father. For it is only by, by you that we are able to do so. For you are in control of all things. You are the one who makes all things happen. And Father, we glorify you for this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a number of announcements before we, we close our service this morning. Um, just as a reminder, we have Sunday school right after the, right after the worship service at, at uh, 1130 here in the sanctuary where we can continue our study in Philippians. We're in chapter 3 this week. Um, also, youth group um, has changed its time for the summer to 630, um, 630 to 8 um, here in the sanctuary. Um, and just as another announcement for summer Bible camp, please um, remember that summer Bible camp is coming up soon in July, July 26th through 29th. Um, it's kin- for kindergartners through fifth grade. Registration is now open and on our website. Also, there are flyers out in the narthex. If you'd like some to take to um, give to your family, give to your neighbors, please do so. Um, also, if you would like to um, help serve in any way, please see me or Emily Kreeble. Um, also, if you'd like to serve by donating things, there's a number of things on the whiteboard um, out there that we are looking for donations, specifically Pringles cans, if you have them. Um, that would be wonderful. With the tops, please. Because um, once you pop the top, the fun don't stop. There we go. Um, also for Testify, Testify, which is for middle school and high school students, which is June, uh, July 20, uh, 25th through 30th. Um, please see me if you're interested in signing up for that. Um, also, there will be a short informational meeting next Sunday right after the service. Um, more information on that will be coming later. Um, also, Paul, if you can come on up, you have an announcement. Well, first, I want to thank Bob for understanding where the word compassion comes come from your spleen. So since I don't have a spleen, my spleen was taken out. That gives me an excuse for not being compassionate. <laughs> On a serious note, for compassion, uh, one of the major problems in the United States and around the world is human trafficking, and that's uh, sexual trafficking of women primarily, and also the ubiquitous problem of the Internet across the, uh, the world, too. So to that effect, we're having the Fairfax County Police come on the 27th of June, so Sunday, Sunday night at 6 p.m., to have a seminar on human trafficking, particularly here in the Fairfax County area, and on Internet predators. So... We ask you that you would come. This is also an outreach to the Saratoga community because Saratoga community is very interested in this. So there are going to be people coming from the Saratoga community. So it will be in the news bites, but I ask you to put that on your calendar. It's two, three weeks from today, uh, 27 June at 6 p.m. here in the Harvester. Thanks. Please stand for the, for the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance toward you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.